Holy Spirit, come now and enliven the teaching of the Word of God among us this morning. Lord, speak truth to our hearts from the Scriptures, we pray. Lord, give me a mouth to preach. Lord, hide me behind the cross. Let nothing but the truth of your word be proclaimed in this pulpit. Not just when I am in it, but in any, any other time when the preacher stands in this pulpit. This, this is holy ground. And Lord, let it only be a place for the truth of the scriptures to be offered up. Lord, please, we ask in Jesus' name that you would give every one of us a attentive, listening, and discerning hearts as you apply this word to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, um, the lectionary, which is our Bible reading uh, system that we go through on a three-year period, there's a series of Bible passages. It's not the whole Bible, but it's a lot of the Bible, probably more than is proclaimed in a, in a service that doesn't use the lectionary. But today, I mean, we, we are between the Scylla and Charybdis, of tithing or politics based on those readings. We've got uh, Malachi, tithe. We've got Jesus, render unto Caesar. What do we do in such a situation? Well, I think uh, given our current context in 2020, uh, maybe we'll go with, with the gospel text and hear what our Lord has to say to us from the scriptures about rendering unto Caesar, rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. Let me give you a little background for that Matthew chapter 22 passage, beginning at that, first, uh, that 15th verse. Uh, this passage in the, is in the context of the final week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. He is teaching in the temple precincts, and in this chapter, he's going to be put to the test by a series of various factions, various factions within Jewish society at that time. So each one of these groups resists and each one of these groups resents Jesus' claims of authorities, of authority and the titles that were shouted at him, to him, for him, as he arrived in Jerusalem just days before in what we know of as the triumphal entry. And you'll remember that's Matthew 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. That's a messianic title. They're proclaiming him as their messianic king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So these rival factions are built, are bent on Jesus's destruction. And in this passage, hear again what it says. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. That word entangle is actually in the Greek. I think it only occurs here in this passage in the New Testament, and it's a hunting term. It literally means like to make a snare for a bird or an animal. So they're hunting for Jesus. Entangle him in his words. And they, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know, we, teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not, a, you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, I want you to think about this in this first series of challenges Jesus receives here in Matthew 22. The very first thing, the very first means by which they seek to destroy Jesus is to draw him into a political argument. 
They want to pull him into a political argument. The first way that they seek to discredit Jesus is to rope him into the political wrangling of his day. And in the same way, worldly powers seek to discredit and eviscerate the church's mission and witness and make us pawns in their political power plays today. It's happening still this very moment. So I don't think that this reading could have come at a more opportune time for the church in the United States of America than in 2020. Right this minute, we need to hear these words from Jesus. Think about it. During the pandemic, during this pandemic, and in the name of health and safety, we have seen the civil authorities throughout our nation make dramatic, dramatic encroachments into the life of the church via mandates about gathering for worship and singing, and in some parts of the country, limiting access, actually the state, actually limiting access to the sacraments. In May, in Knox County, Tennessee, the local government there banned, they banned Holy Communion or even bringing a Bible to church. Well, once you get rid of the Word of God and the sacraments, that pretty much covers everything. <laughs> the same draconian measures have not been applied equally throughout all sectors of, of our public life, leading some to suspect that such actions are actually a manifestation of animus towards religion in general and Christianity in particular by those who are wielding the power of the state. And also, just think about, as we frequently say now, we are living in the most politically polarized era, one of the most politically polarized eras of American history. The rhetoric on both sides is vitriolic and it's demeaning. We're not even a full three weeks away from the presidential election, and both candidates have made statements that suggest they may not accept the outcome of the election. That has never happened in my lifetime or anybody in this room's lifetime that I'm aware of. So let's see if this passage we heard from Matthew's gospel can help us navigate as followers of Jesus Christ the troubled political waters of our time. Let's see what it can do to help us navigate this particular moment. Now, you also need to know, brothers and sisters, that first century Palestine, Palestine, so Israel at that point was called the Roman province of Palestine, first century Palestine was at least, at least as politically fraught and as politically rancorous as our day and age. You had so many sects and sectors and political uh, parties within Palestine in that era. You had the Zealots, which were sort of the uh, militia movement of the day. They wanted to resist Roman oppression by military means. You had the Essenes who wanted to be just completely out of the uh, out of the religious life or the social life altogether and have their own little independent Benedict option or Essene option community off in Qumran in that area. You have the Pharisees and Sadducees and all these different parties. They were all rivals and the political atmosphere was very volatile, and Rome was always worried about a rebellion in Palestine. And it's in that context, in, it's in that context when these political, this political moment that Jesus has brought this question, and he does not let the world, listen, Jesus will not let the world 
all this rolling around about him in Palestine define his political categories. The disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, and we have no idea who the Herodians were, probably, I guess, supporters of Herod Antipas, who was the, uh, was the son of Herod the Great, so maybe a pro-Roman, pro-Roman government faction, we just don't know. But the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians seek to give Jesus, listen, they want to give him a binary choice. They want to hang Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And here it is. Are you for paying taxes to G- uh, are you for paying taxes to Caesar or are you against it? Are you pro Caesar or anti Caesar? Pick one Jesus, come on, pick one, choose a side. Well, they know that if he says, "No, you should not pay taxes to Caesar," then they can charge him with what? He's fomenting rebellion against the government. And if he says, "Sure, go ahead, pay that tax," then they can paint Jesus as a collaborator with the pagan oppressive Roman occupiers, and they discredit him with the people that he's really had the most influence with, the faithful Jewish people. He's no longer would be seen as a teacher, a faithful teacher in their eyes. But you know what he does? He refuses, listen, he refuses to play their game, doesn't he? He bursts out of their political categories. And here's the message and the application for you and me today. Please listen, y'all, because this applies to all of us. We're all, they're all trying to suck us into their political game. Whoever they are, they're doing it. The great they. Here's the message for us today. We do not have to accept the political categories that the world offers us. We are not bound to accept those political categories. Christians far too easily become co-opted by political ideologies and allegiances whether they are conservative or progressive or Republican or Democrat or right-wing or left-wing or libertarian or anarchist or Marxist, they're all, we're so easily pulled in to these categories. You know, for some Christians, for some Christians, there is a God and country kind of right-wing idolatry. I've seen this, this has happened in this town Uh, And since I've been here, that turns the 4th of July, which is a civic holiday, all about it, love it, love me some fireworks, glad we won that war of independence. Uh, Well, right up to this minute, I've been glad about it, we'll see. But (laughs) they turn that 4th of July celebration into a Sunday morning religious celebration. It's It's a form of idolatry. It's a conservative idolatry that talks about the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, both of which I think are awesome, but they treat those documents with the same kind of reverence afforded the Holy Scripture. I've seen this happen, heard it this week among Christians, talking as if this was Scripture almost. It's a Christianity that promotes pro-corporate, laissez-faire capitalism as the only Christian form of economics. That's idolatry. We're so easily pulled into that category. On the other hand, there is what's called progressive Christianity, which is equally idolatrous. It tends to baptize the left wing of American politics. As one liberal mainline Protestant denomination has been described, it consists of the Democrat Party at prayer. These are Christians who can conflate secular social justice 
with biblical justice. It's equally idolatrous, and some people are being pulled into that as well. But here's the reference for us today. Jesus refused to be stuffed into the political categories that are set before him. So hear, hear me, brothers and sisters, what you're being pulled into from friends and Good Lord, did you, anybody here got any political mail lately? Does that happen? Is that only happening to me? Did Donald Trump call you with a special message? Has anybody received a text? Am I paying for those texts, those political texts? Why is this happening to me? And by the way, my name's not Adam. I don't know uh, why they, I think I have Adam's phone number anyway. And I don't know what Adam was up to based on the people who are trying to get up with him. But. So, you know, he, his, he refused to be stuffed into the political categories, and that reminds us, reminds you and me, no matter how many of those text messages and advertisements we get, that the Christian faith, the historic Christian faith, transcends political categories that the world wants to force upon us. Jesus Christ transcends party politics and political ideologies. He, and I've said this before, Jesus Christ will not be your political mascot. He is Lord of all. He's not, he's not your mascot. He will not serve politi- political agendas. They ultimately will serve him because it says in my Bible, Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether powers on the earth or under the earth or above the earth. Every, every power is going to confess him as Lord. The political right and the political left do not embrace the breadth of biblical Christian faith. Now, I have given a somewhat similar list before, but this does bear repeating. So please listen. The gospel requires that we do not take, as believers, we are not allowed to take innocent life. The Bible sees unborn life as fully human, and the earliest Christian document outside of the New Testament, the Didache, and some people actually believe it was written somewhere between 95 A.D. and about 115 A.D. Some people think that portions of that may have been written as early as in the 40s A.D. We're not really sure, but it is the earliest non-biblical Christian document, the Didache, expressly, so we're getting the, the sense of the church from that period, expressly forbids the practice of abortion. You know, early Christians rescued infants who were exposed. Those infants who were left to die outside the garbage dumps of Rome, on the garbage heaps of Rome, Christians would come at night and take those exposed infants home and raise them. And you know, all of that sounds like the political right, doesn't it? But then Jesus also says that the peoples of the earth will be judged based on their treatment of the poor, the prisoner, the stranger, and the hungry. Listen to what it says in Matthew 25, beginning at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed. That's serious. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh my goodness, what possibly could they have done to have gotten into all that trouble? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, 
and you did not look after me, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Thus, biblical Christianity reflects God's passionate care for justice, for the marginalized, and yes, that sounds very progressive, and all social justice doesn't it? Well, biblical Christianity is also pro-natural family. The gospel requires that we live lives of sexual purity based on God's creative design, that sexual intimacy is only to be rightly expressed within the bonds of a lifelong marriage of a man and a woman with the produce of that marriage being children to be raised in the Lord. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 19. This is what Jesus says, y'all. This isn't uh, Ralph Reed or whoever's doing that kind of stuff now. Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. That sounds like conservatism, doesn't it? But then, not only is Christianity procreation, it's procreation. In other words, the, the biblical Christian faith is pro-environment. You see, we see the natural world, the biblical faith sees the natural world as created by God and as being sacramental in nature. Listen, y'all, what does that mean, is sacramental in nature? It means that God's goodness, His grace, His love is poured out to us through this material, beautiful material creation. Fall is just an amazing example of that, isn't it? Elizabeth Avenue, just right north of this, where we are right now, this next street running that way, is lined with sugar maples, and this time of year, it's absolutely breathtaking, the beauty that you see there. And when I see that, one year, um, this was weird, but I did it anyway, uh, I, I asked the fella up here in the corner, it was somebody who was before this current resident, I said, can I just lie down in your yard under your tree and just look up at the tree? And I, I know they probably want to call the police at that point, but just look up. And I want I wanted to just look at the light coming through those orange and gold and red leaves. And I just, man, God, you're so good. So we think that the natural world is sacramental, that it has the power to convey God's blessing of grace. That means God loves this created material world. He manifests his grace through it. And so, therefore, Christians revere and care for the environment, and we don't plunder it. Not if we're biblical Christians. Revelation 11, verse 18, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, and listen, and for destroying those who destroy the earth seems that God takes the environment very seriously. That sounds like the Sierra Club. It's like the left. What is going on here? And then you, we heard from Malachi today. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, biblical Christianity is pro-private property, and it sees material possessions as gifts from God for his glory and the blessing of others. You know, it's only when we, uh, when we can own property that radical generosity has any meaning because if the state takes all the property and you don't own anything, you can't be generous. 
You cannot give what you do not own. And that sounds very conservative. Finally, biblical Christianity is, is communitarian. What does that mean? Well, we believe that human flourishing depends on living in rich community where we're known and where we give ourselves away to others in love. Listen to what, G, what uh, Paul says about the, the body of Christ. This is about the church. This is about what we're supposed to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, not just individuals, but of, mem of many. Communitarian, that sounds like, like left-wing hippie talk, communitarianism. That's right. Christ the Christian faith, the historic faith, cannot be contained in the political categories that the world would offer us. Now, this passage, however, listen, what Jesus does here, he doesn't let us off the political hook. It reveals that Christian faith is indeed inherently political because Paul, the polis just means the people. So anything dealing with the people is political, isn't it? And here's the thing. God claims sovereignty over politics just like he does every other sphere of human activity. Jesus does when he has asked this question, although he will not conform to their, their categories, Jesus does enter the fray, the political fray. He does it on his own terms, not on their terms. But he doesn't say, he doesn't say this, you know, I'm not going to answer that question because it is political. The wall of separation between church and state prevents me from expressing my views. Jesus did not say that. So, brothers and sisters, if you want a religion that is not political, do not choose Christianity. Because as soon as you and I say, Jesus is Lord, and that is the very first creed of the church, you and I are making a political statement. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that he is sovereign, that he has ultimate authority over every scintilla of human existence, from farming to business to education to family to science to leisure, whatever it is. In the words of the Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who was sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, mine. So Jesus' response here in this passage to this political question is actually, listen, he puts Caesar, he puts the civil authorities in their place. Jesus says in verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius and Jesus said to them, whose likeness? And it's actually, it doesn't say that. It says in the Greek there is whose icon? Whose icon is this? Whose image, not likeness, whose icon is this? Whose inscription? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You know, Jesus, Jesus said a lot of smart things, y'all. 
you know, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think maybe you're like me. Maybe we're not sufficiently impressed with just how brilliant our Lord was. But all the smart things he said, this is right up at the top. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And it doesn't mean that these are two separate and equal spheres of allegiance either. He's going to show you that. Now, that word render unto, it just literally, it literally means give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I mean, he's got his face on it that must belong to him. Give back to the Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So what is due, and here's our question, this is where we get very specific and granular, as they say, this morning. What is due to Caesar? Well, according to Jesus here, what is due to Caesar? Taxes. And Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 13, along with offering honor and respect to be given to the civil authorities. And likewise, our obedience is due to the civil authorities for conscience sake. That is Romans chapter 13, verse 5. But the civil authorities are due these things. Please, this is so important. And this might seem dry and very intellectual. It's not, if it's come from me, it's not real intellectual. It might, be, it might seem real didactic this morning. But folks, I can't think of a time when the church didn't needed when the church needed some didactic instruction on this kind of stuff more than right now. Because from what I can see, from most believers, we are just idolaters when it comes to the political realm. We are totally co-opted by the categories they've been giving us. I'm trying to get you out of that and give you a different category, a different way of thinking about this, directly from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is vital. Otherwise, you'll be swept away and be Christian in name only, not in how we think and live out our lives. This is how important this is. So Jesus says, render under Caesar. Paul says we should give, you know, give tribute to whom tribute is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom respect is due. And then in Romans 13, 11, I mean 13, verse 1, Paul tells us, though, that all of that respect and obedience to the just laws of state are due because, not because, listen, not because the government has some innate authority all by itself. No, this is what the Bible says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been, have been instituted by God. All the state's authority, legitimate authority, is derivative from God. Now, if you actually read the parish notes, both of you who do that, <laughs> some of what I'm about to say will sound familiar, but here it is. The one holy Catholic and apostolic church does not believe and has never believed that civil governments have ultimate binding authority on earth. Did you hear that? We do not believe that the civil government has ultimate binding authority on the earth. Rather, we believe and have always believed since day one that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19.16. So he's king of all the kings of the earth. He's Lord of every power structure. We believe that, on, by the words of our Lord himself at the Great Commission, that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given unto Jesus. Matthew 28, verse 18. We believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, Revelation 11, 15. Notice the tense of that sentence. Jesus has supreme authority over every earthly power. Finally, one day after we're all dead, no, right now. 
the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ by his victory over death at his resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand and his ongoing eternal session in glory. Over every earthly power, even right now. That's what we believe. So here's what this means for us, especially during a time, here's the even more closely parsed application during a time of pandemic and looking forward to what may unfold following a presidential election. You need to hear this. The state, the civil authorities, have no ultimate authority. They have no, nil, none, no ultimate authority to tell the church it may or may not assemble for worship. The state has no authority to make that proclamation. Now, we, we are commanded in Holy Scripture. Why is that? We're commanded in Holy Scripture not to, this is Hebrews 10.25, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. However, we may, under the authority of our bishop, and we did this, limit meeting together and take other measures as prudent responses to the pandemic. We did that out of love of neighbor and as prudence but not because the governor said so. We did it because the bishop said so. The state of North Carolina, or for that matter, the state of North Korea, has no ultimate authority to tell the church it may or may not gather. Worship is commanded by God. And no matter what Caesar may think or claim, he is not God. The state has, furthermore, the state has no sovereignty. How much? None, no sovereignty at all whatsoever, not a scintilla of it, not an iota of sovereignty to dictate to the church how it administers the sacraments. The state cannot define the terms by which the church offers the sacraments of the Lord's Supper or Holy Baptism because they didn't institute them. The Lord Jesus Christ did. And they are operated under His, ordina His ordination of those means of grace, not the state's. Therefore, no governor, no president, no unelected, unelected regulatory agency or civil magistrate can dictate to us how or even whether we are to administer the sacraments ordained by Jesus Christ. I hope that's clear. Now, our bishop has given us instruction. We all in this room have already heard it over and over again on how we are to do this safely and prudentially during a pandemic. No doubt about it. We want to love our neighbors. We want to be careful. But North Carolina doesn't have the right to tell us how to do it. The state, likewise, has no sovereignty, no authority, none, to command the church not to sing praises to God. Did you listen to Psalm 96 this morning? How many times were we told to sing praises to God? I mean, it was redundant. Redundant, redundant, redundant. The biblical commands and admonitions that we sing praises to God are so numerous as to overwhelm the need for citation. But along with Psalm 96 that we offered up this morning, let the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 suffice. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart again, we may choose and have in one of our services, our Saturday night service, 
and an abundance of caution to not sing during our services. But the state does not have the authority to tell the church not to sing. Won't do it. If the state tells us to do it, uh, we may say, you know, we think that's a really good idea. Thank you for your, your advice. But at some point, we might say, no, we're ready to sing now. The state, they can do whatever they want to do. We have to accept the consequences. But, oh, no, sir, no, Caesar, no way. We're not going to do that. I could give many more examples of when the church must tell Caesar, you have overstepped your bounds and we will not obey. But here is a brief summation, a brief way, and I hope you, if you write something down or go back and listen to this again, this might, you might find this helpful. How do we know when we are to obey or to not obey the civil authorities? When do we obey or not obey the civil authorities? Here it is, very briefly. Are you ready? If Caesar commands the civil authorities, we're using Caesar as shorthand, if Caesar commands that which Christ forbids, or if Caesar forbids that which Christ commands, the Christian by conscience is bound to disobey Caesar. If Caesar tells you to do something that Jesus said, oh, don't do that, or if Caesar says you, uh, to not do something that Jesus said you need to do that, you do not obey Caesar. Now, you have to accept the consequences Caesar wants to deal out, but Christians are bound to disobey in such settings. That is Christian civil disobedience. According to Jesus, he says in that passage, Whose likeness, whose inscription are on that, that coin? Caesar's. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So according to Jesus, the coin belongs to the one whose image is stamped upon it. The coin, it, that item belongs to the one whose image is stamped upon us, upon it. Ever since the time of Tertullian, the church has seen, the, seen us, all of humanity adds God's, ready, coin. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, in the image and likeness of God, he made them. We are stamped with God's image. That means, who does that coin belong to? God. How many people, does, how many people belong to God? Only everyone that's made in the image of God, which means everybody. We are God's coin. Our lives are God's. Our existence is God's. We're to render back to God the things that are God. We are, and brothers and sisters, for us, as we process the claims of the state over us, we need to remember that you and I are sojourners. We are just passing through. This kingdom right now, as precious as this 250-year-old country is right this moment, which, by the way, on a historical scale is a blip, as wonderful as it is, as much as I love living here, it's not going to last. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. This kingdom will pass away too. But brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20 And with all the saints, we are seeking a homeland we desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. We're looking forward to the city that is, has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We are looking towards our homeland, our ultimate homeland, and that is where our ultimate, no matter what anybody tells you, that's where my allegiance is. 
And that's why every Sunday morning we say the Pledge of Allegiance to the Kingdom of God and we call it the Nicene Creed. So Christians, stand up.